Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project Barbara Abercrombie. When Barbara's husband died, she found the language of condolence, no matter how well intended, often not only unhelpful, but sometimes downright irritating. In her grief, she yearned for words that acknowledged the reality of what it felt like to survive a loved one's death, and that could unflinchingly speak to the sorrow and loneliness, and sometimes even guilt and anger, that can show up in the mourning process. When she searched for a book that might help, they were all either too clinical or too flowery. She ultimately created the book that she needed. Finding that ordinary language wouldn't do, she discovered that it was poetry that cut to the chase. Her book, The Language of Loss, Poetry and Prose for Grieving and Celebrating the Love of Your Life, is Barbara's 16th book. It's a collection of reflections on grief, from many of the world's best and most diverse writers and poets, from Patti Smith to Rumi, from Joan Didion to Mary Oliver. It's a book that shares both the abject anguish of loss and the glimmers of hope and possibility that can be born of it. Barbara is an award-winning writer, writing instructor at the UCLA Extension. She lives in Southern California with her rescue dogs, Nina and Nelson, who might just make their opinions known during this chat. (laughs) Uh, So Barbara, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you, Betsy. Thanks so much for inviting me. So Barbara, tell me about before February 2015. Tell me what your life was like with your husband. Well, it was there were two parts of it actually. I had a wonderful life with my husband. It was a second marriage, and I had known him for a long time. He was one of my best male friends. And um, when we both went through divorces, and we went through them separately, we didn't cause each other's divorce, but we we got together after our divorces, and we had we had learned a lot from failed marriages, and we had a wonderful marriage, and we had a wonderful, I like to think almost perfect blended family. And um, he was involved in his work, and I worked, and um, I I thought, oh, I have I have a perfect life now. Um, and then the last, he, he, he had a lot of health issues, but the last year of his life, he was, he was very, he was very ill. And, um, and that's when the perfect life started to, uh, fall apart mm-hmm. as all perfect lives do. I think at some point or another. So he became quite ill. I'm gathering what, what was the nature of his illness? He was, um, diagnosed with throat cancer. 
um, in uh, February uh, uh, 2014. And he went through treatment, and the treatment was really you know, worse than the disease. He could no longer, you know, he had a stomach tube. He could no longer eat or drink. And, um, and then he recovered, he recovered from the cancer. And, but by then it was a downward spiral. He had, I, he had like 12 doctors and was on 20 medications and, uh, and he had to have back surgery and, and one thing led to another and he got sicker and sicker and he, he died February 10th. So virtually a year after he was diagnosed with the cancer. Yeah. And I'm writing a memoir about that. It's called The Year Before, uh, about what we went through. Mm. Well, and it seems that, you know, so so many times that end of life period of time can offer us just a mixed bag of experiences, both poignant and loving and also so exhausting and maddening and sorrow filled. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the blended, the perfect blended family also created um, issues that I had, I had no idea of. So it was, it became very complicated on many, many levels. How so? (laughs) Um, With stepchildren. And I, I had, um, you know, I, you read obituaries and, and -and so-and-so died at home surrounded by his loving family and I, um, the lo- a loving, a, a blended family can be very, very difficult, um, especially, you know, with, with grown children, um, with middle-aged children we had. And um, it was, it was, a, um, it was emotional on, on a, a lot of different levels because I was being second guessed, um, but, you know, mm. and it got very, <laughs> let's use the word complicated. <laughs> That's the... Complicated. Well, and, and, you know, of course, I don't, I'm not asking you to, to share details that belong to other people. But I guess what I mean is that, that that added to the difficulty that rather than sort of being that quote, perfect blended family that you thought you had, the, the fissures and challenges and difficulties emerged. They did. And all the longtime uh, resentments and, and siblings, the siblings themselves were, um, were, were, were fighting and and getting angry at each other and um uh it it became very dramatic and i i i found myself envying people who who went through grief in a very pure way mm-hmm. without the underpinnings of drama and 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 mm-hmm. backstabbing actually you could call it well you know it's funny for a long time barbara i've i've used a term that i think I made up. I don't think I stole it. There's a myriad different kinds of grief, of course. Um, but, but I have a kind of grief that I like to call simple grief, Yes, which is just, I think of my grandfather passed away. For example, he was 97 years old. He was much beloved. He had no enemies, none, no unfinished business. He led a simple, kind, decent life. Right. And when he passed, we were sad that we would miss him, but that was the simplest grief, right? right. <laughs> he, he lived independently until his last days. There was just nothing to grieve, but that, that, that he wasn't with right. us anymore. That's sort of like, I, I hold that up as my kind of gold standard of simple grief. Yes. Right? And it gets, here, here's a technical term. It gets crappier from that <laughs> down. Right? Right. It, that, that when there's either a longstanding illness and you have mixed feelings about somebody parting or 
because you're also, I'm guessing, relieved because they're out of anguish right, and, right. and you're probably exhausted. Yes. When there is contention, when there's an unre- unresolved issues that are left behind by the person or between you and their loved ones, all of that, it, it gets more and more complicated. It's no longer that simple grief experience. Exactly. That's- oh. Frankly, quite rare. Oh, how wonderful your grandfather had such a beautiful death. I mean, that's how that's how we all want to go. Yeah, so I can understand you being jealous about that a little bit. And also, it was com- what was complicated in my case, in my husband's case, was that he was on so many medications, mm. and he which and he was deeply depressed and angry, and I was the nearest target. And so it was back and forth and we had never, we, we rarely ever fought. We never bickered. You know, we'd gotten through with all that stuff in our first marriages. So we were suddenly in this very difficult marriage. And then when he did die, um, and there, then there's the fight, you know, the, the fight at the end of should he die at home? Should he die in a nursing home? And his kids were saying, "Oh, he's got to go to the nursing home because he's going to get well, and he'll they'll he'll do exercises." And you know, it was mm-hmm. crazy. And um, uh, and then um, and then there's the stuff afterward. I'm reading a wonderful novel, Anne Patch. It's uh, the Dutch House about a house that's left, and I'm thinking, oh my God, that's like my <laughs> that's my story. Um, in reverse, but uh, um, you know, the, and and very often, widows or widowers have to leave where they've they've spent all their time with their house. They give up, you know, they they leave their house. Right. So it's um, it's a difficult time. Well, and I'm, I mean, I don't, I haven't done any research on this, but I'm guessing that my ideals of that simple grief, that that kind of experience is in the minority, that more often when we lose somebody, particularly somebody close to us, in addition to whatever sorrow we might have in their leaving, there are usually some other complications, either something that we said or wish we hadn't or didn't say and wish we had, something unresolved, some you know, all of that. And it's it's also it's always been funny to me or peculiar to me that, or it used to be, and it seems clearer now that when somebody loses, and I'm not saying that this is your relationship with your husband, of course, but when somebody loses somebody from whom they are either estranged or hostile or any of those kinds of things that their, their grief is harder. And it always seemed like, gosh, why would you, why would that be harder for you when rather than losing somebody that you're deeply love, deeply love. And I, and I, it comes back to that notion of simplicity that just, it's a simple sorrow and it's not tangled up with a bunch of other mess. Exactly. And that's what I, I do want to write a book about. I, I am writing the memoir and I'm, I'm the, the message is settle let each other know how you want to die, you know, Mm -hmm. really discuss it. And, um, don't deny the fact that one of you is going to die and, 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 and plan for it. And I'm, I'm in a space now where I, I talk at great length to my daughter. So one of my daughters, one daughter, one daughter doesn't want to hear about this. She just doesn't want to talk about, you know, the possibility. And the other daughter is wonderful. She, you know, I'm so, I can tell her everything uh, the way I want things. And we're, we, you know, we're hoping it's not for a while, many years yet, but um, I feel it's a good feeling too, to know that someone has all your wishes and will carry them out. 
Well, there's there's an organization called Reimagine End of Life, oh, really? and in fact, we've oh. had we've had two um, two guests on this on the Morning Glory project who've spoken about it, and it's a it's exactly this. You you may want to check them out. It's an organization that helps people talk candidly about death before, during, and after the process, and helps to prepare them and all of that. And it sounds like that's what you were craving too. But you, because you're a word person, a writer. You've written and read and taught writing and all of that. You craved words. I did. That brought you comfort. And what did you find? What did I find? Um, From the flowery to the clinical, I, I think found, is what yeah, we said. or self-help. And I, 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 I would, self-help made me angry. I didn't want steps or stages. I, I wanted company. Mm. And the way I have found company all my life is by reading. Wait, I want to linger there for a okay. second. I didn't want self-help. Yeah. I didn't want steps. I wanted company. And for you, words, poetry, stories, that was your company? Yes. I wanted people who could articulate what they had gone through and how difficult it was and how crazy they were. And it's crazy. A priest told me um, at my husband's memorial before it, he said, you know, you're going to be crazy and fragile for a year. And then you're still going to be crazy and fragile, but not as much so. That was the most helpful thing anybody had ever said to me, because that's exactly <laughs> how I felt, crazy and fragile. Well, and it was normal. Well, it sounds like it made you feel less crazy and less Ex- fragile to hear exactly, that. Ex- ironically. Exactly. And when I read, so I wanted to read poets. And then beginning, I couldn't concentrate. You know, well, you know, you're a therapist that after a trauma your concentration goes. And um, I couldn't keep track of stories or I couldn't read a book or even the newspaper in the beginning, but I could read brief, brief poems, pieces of poems. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I would read them over and over. And after, after about, I guess it was, it was after a year, I thought there is a book in this. There's a book about, losing the love of your life, you know, your spouse, your, your partner. And there is one wonderful book by Kevin, uh, edited by Kevin Young called The Art of Losing. And it's beautiful poetry about grief, but it's all kinds of grief. And though it's terribly hard to lose your parents, and I've gone through that, it's a grief that you expect. Um, it hurts terribly, but you always, you have your own life to go back to afterward. Mm. And when you lose your partner, he is he or she is your life, and and uh, you have to the bottom of your life falls out, and then you have to rebuild another life. So I couldn't find in in his book there were very few poems about partners. It was all about parents and friends dying, and I needed um, I I wanted I wanted I wanted company. Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking, Barbara, as you're talking about how you know we tend. I think, I mean, first of all, at least in Western culture, American culture, which is the only one I'm most familiar with, of course, we don't tend to want to talk about this stuff anyway. Yeah, right, right. But but when we do, we tend to speak about it in generalities, yes, right? Yes. So so there, there are these general books about grief. And God bless, you know, Kubler-Ross for coming up with stages so we could kind of put some language to it and all of that. But it sounds like what you were craving is what so many of us crave when we're in anguish or confusion is that you were craving some specific understanding yes for your circumstances so so it sounds like 
the the language of loss that you've done, you've assembled poetry and prose that speaks specifically to partner loss. Yes, but and I've been ha- that's exactly what um, um, I intended it for. But I'm finding number of people who have. Uh, who have read it or given it to friends, and it's also like a gift book. It's what you give to a friend if you don't, you know, when you don't know what to say. Um, but a lot of people have said it's just helped them through all kinds of grief, and mm. heaven knows we're going through national grief right now. Well, maybe the the specific can be generalized, but the generalized it's hard to make it specific. Oh, that's wonderful! I'm going to write that down. Does that feel true? Yeah, yeah. So. Barbara, tell me, you know, I've, I'm a writer, but I'm, and I dabble in some poetry, but I'm not a poet by nature, but I've always admired poets. I've always, I've often said that, you know, they can sometimes say in 17 syllables, what it takes me 350 pages to exactly. figure out. Yes. Um, so you're saying that poetry cut and, and these short bits of po- prose kind of cut to the chase. Right. They, in other words, are you saying that they're, they really cut out the extraneous stuff and just went right to the heart of what you were feeling? The narrative, the what happened and why, and, and the whole story of it, it, it went right to the heart, right to the, to, um, to the feelings. As a matter of fact, I gave my, I, I teach memoir at UCLA and I gave my students a, uh, a, a, um, a homework assignment this this week saying, um, go find a stuck place in your memoir and turn it into poetry. You don't have to write any, you don't have to tell us anything. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have to show us anything, turn it into a poem. So I'm quite eager to find out what they're going to be turning Mm. in next week. But, but um, yeah, it's, it's like a shot. I don't know. Poetry was like a shot of adrenaline to me or, and and there was one, uh, there were, there were some poems I'd read and I'd weep and I'd weep, but I needed to weep. When you're grieving, you need to weep. You don't need to, get over it or, um, you know, come to, uh, uh, what's the the word everybody always uses? Um, closure, 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 the closure. And I'll, 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 I'll tell you, can I tell you an anecdote about my daughter's grief makes other people very nervous. You know, they, it's very hard to Mm -hmm. be around people. You know, you have to just, um, and my daughters thought I should go to a grief group. And this was about four months into it. Uh, Bob had been dead for four months. And um, finally, I said, okay, I'll go to a grief group. And I, I, I had the intake. You know, I met a counselor for an intake, and she was asking me questions. And she said, um, do you ever feel that you can't go on? And I said, yeah. I said, I do. I have felt that way. I felt, what's the point of going on living? This is so painful. And I said, but then I realized I would have to kill my dog. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) what kind of a person would kill her dog? And that uh, that struck me as so funny. I realized I was no longer suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, isn't it funny how sometimes those macabre moments? Exactly. Cut through our grief and get to the funny bones Dark somehow. Dark humor of that. I yes, yes. I would have to murder them. Oh, I so. know this. I know this feeling. Yes. <laughs> I know yes. that. You know, it's funny. I, I've often thought that you know when people say that you need to get over yeah. something, I thought, well, it's just the wrong 
preposition, right? I mean, it sh- it's not get over, yeah. it's get through, through it. Yeah. it, live with yeah. it. You have to walk through it. And I found grief, I grieved for two years. I mean, that's what I did. And I had, and I was, I got through it by every morning I got up and did yoga for 20 minutes because that's what I've been doing since I, for the past 40 or 50 years, I get up and I do yoga and I don't think about it. It's an absolute habit. And then I would take my dog out and we would walk for miles and miles. And then I would invite my friends over for potlucks. I'd say, I can't cook, but I would love it if you'd bring food and we'll all have Mm -hmm. a wonderful dinner together. And we did, I did that a lot. And then I went back to work teaching two months after and, and I had no concentration for it, but I kept meticulous notes about what I was going to say and what every, my students said, and I got through it. And I, I realized I couldn't be, I could only be alone in the house for so long. So sometimes I'd just get in the car and drive and I couldn't, oddly, I couldn't, um, I had a hard time writing alone in the house in the very beginning. So I would go to one of my daughters and sit at her kitchen table. It was a daughter who had a lot of dogs and little kids. And that's how I started writing when my children were little and I'd sit in a kitchen and I'd write and there were dogs and little children. Isn't it funny that most of us would think, oh, to write, you need to go off by yourself, but it sounds like it was too cavernous. The yes. emptiness was too big. Yeah, exactly. You needed the noise and the distraction to kind of, that, you know, it's it sometimes, doesn't it seem like sometimes you have to have something to rub against. That is so true. You know, that is so true, Betsy. That's a wonderful, because when I had little kids and I was juggling my life and, you know, my writing time was so precious. And then when they grew up and I went through a divorce and had all the time in the world, there's such a thing as having too much time. And I had too much time to write and I had to re-figure out how, how do I do it? What do I do without rubbing against the, um, the limitations, the limitations. Exactly. Yeah. Huh? Well, Barbara, I understand you have, you have a short bit of prose that you can read for us today that that was sort of emblematic of your experience. Would you be willing to read that for us? I will. And, and I also want to say the book is in, is an arc, um, from there's three sections and the first section is really abject grief it's it's sweet it's called sweeping up the heart and then the second section is called going on after and it's when you grit your teeth and you just get through it you just get up every morning and do what you have to do and then the third section is called turning and it's a line from patty smith who i adore mm-hmm. And it's when your life starts to turn and you're no longer grieving. You're missing. You will always miss the person you, who's died. You will just always miss them and want to tell them things. But it's this, it's very different than grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, this is by Julian Barnes, who is a uh, British writer, who I, a novelist and, and essayist, and I adore him. This is from an essay called From Levels of Life. I did already know that only the old words would do. Death, grief, sorrow, sadness, heartbreak. Nothing modernly evasive or medicalizing. Grief is a human, not a medical condition. And while there are pills to help us forget it and everything else, there are no pills to cure it. The grief struck are not depressed, just properly, appropriately, mathematically, quote marks, it hurts exactly as, it much, as much as it is worth, sad. 
One euphemistic verb I especially loathed was pass. I'm sorry to hear your wife has passed, as in past water, past blood. You do not have to force the word die on others, even if you always use it yourself. There is a midpoint. At a social event, she and I would normally have attended together. An acquaintance came up and said to me simply, there's someone missing. That felt correct in both senses. Hmm. Well, it sounds like what you did is that you sort of recreated architecture of your life after, you know, after you got through that sort of acute anguish period Mm -hmm. that you added in the normal stuff that you pieced it together. You started, you did, you kept up with some of your normal rituals, like the yoga, which I'm sure was sustaining. Yes, yes. But then you added some new things, you know, the potlucks with friends that you reached out. I did. And I, I, there was one point, and specifically there were potlucks with just family and friends. And then at one point I thought our house, we had a big house and it was very big and very empty. And I thought, I want to fill this with life. There's been too much sadness in it the past year. So I invited all my writer friends and my students um, to come to a, uh, we called it the, um, the lit salon. And I said, you know, bring something to read. You can read whatever you're working on, uh, read for five minutes and then bring something to eat and something to drink. And it worked out so well. I think it was the smartest thing I did after Bob died Hmm. because I grew to about, you know, 30, 35 people, bottles of wine, wonderful food to eat. And then I limited it to 10 people who would read for five minutes each. And they all fell in love with each other's writing and each other. And it was just an incredibly loving group. And then after I moved out of the house, I had a temporary small apartment, a very tiny apartment. And I thought, well, this is where I live. This is, I'm going to invite all those 35 people. And they, you know, they all came, brought the wine, brought the food. And they all said, oh, it's so much cozier here. And it, and it worked. And then when I, this was in Los Angeles and I'm, I'm now in Pasadena and I have another house and we're, we're still doing it not during the pandemic, but we've done it. It went on for three years. And I hope as soon as this pandemic is over, we'll start up again. But it was, it was really, and I'm amazed. I'm sort of amazed at myself because it was such a smart thing to do. And I wasn't, I don't think, didn't think I was doing smart things at the time. Well, there's smart from the head and there's smart from the instinct. And it sounds like your instinct was, was that you, I'll be audacious here. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as though you built another family, really, in some ways. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yes. And a family that could nurture, they didn't replace your loved ones, of course, but they they could give you what you needed. I call it, it's like family of choice as opposed to family by DNA, right? Your family by design. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to, I'll tell you a secret. That's how I feel about my students, you know, too. Mm -hmm. They are my family. And um, yeah, and I feel one of the blessings of my life is having work that I absolutely adore teaching and writing. I mean, I think if any, you know, if, if you're, if it's so important 
for whether it's volunteer work or whatever it is, but finding something that you feel passionate about. And, um, and I was able to turn work into, you're so right, a, a family, a community. It was a real community. And what so, what so thrilled me was that they felt that they had found a community too. And writers are usually so isolated mm-hmm. and they just love having this, um, this lit salon community. It's their family. At at a time in our culture when we don't have the sort of same sense of neighborhood and community very often, we don't. And and certainly, you know, our lives on freeways and (laughs) those kinds of things don't don't typically connect us as deeply. It sounds like you, you just, you created your own little town square. (laughs) I did, I did, Bessie. I so loved it. I still love it. And, uh, Yes, and I'm I'm teaching on Zoom now, but that feels like oh, they all come to my screen every Tuesday morning, and we all get together, and it's even more important now. Well, you know that that's a lesson we're all learning is how to to connect when we're apart. Yeah, and we have the blessing and sometimes the irritation of technology that lets us do that. Right, Barbara. I I also want to thank you. Um, a friend, a dear friend of mine, recently lost a husband that she had been with for many, many years. And I can't tell you how comforting it was to be able to recommend a book that was specifically for her needs. Oh, And so I, so I thank you on a personal level and thank you so very much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I so appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness and your good heart today. Oh, Betsy, thank you. Thank you for all your wonderful questions. I've really enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Sometimes you have a conversation with somebody that just seems too doggone short. (laughs) And that was the case for me with Barbara Abercrombie. I wanted to learn more about her story and, and to gather more information from how she got through the grief that she lived through. You know, I was really touched by one specific thing that she said, though, that I want to emphasize. And she talked about how in her grief, she didn't want platitudes. She didn't want specific words. She didn't want steps to go through or clinical information. What she wanted was company. And that, yes, eventually that meant people where she had her potlucks and her students and her writing salon. But at first for her, that company meant stories and poetry and words that she found comforting. I think we all want company and some people, the company is just the company of themselves. They want some solitude for a while. And for others, they want to be surrounded by others. For some it's exercise and nature and for others it's poetry. But what we all want is company in our grief to be understood. I've used this quote before, but it's one that I sort of live by from Sue Monk Kidd, who says, there's no pain on earth that doesn't crave a benevolent witness. And it seemed that that's what Barbara talked about. I'll take that as my extra bloom today. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. I certainly appreciate your time, and I wish you every comfort and every bit of safety. And I hope that you, wherever you are, whomever you're with, whether it's just you or you have a whole crew of barking dogs and yelling kids, (laughs) that you find your own way to bloom.